Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring live talks from the Sydney Opera House. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby, and today's episode was recorded at All About Women in 2020. First, she got hot flushes, then insomnia, then depression. When Darcy Steinke hit menopause, she was furious no one had warned her about the extreme impact it would have on her physical, mental and emotional well-being. While women happily share stories of pregnancy and childbirth, as a culture it's somehow shameful to talk about menopause. So, join this honest and intelligent conversation about the prejudices and power that surround this transformative time in a well, woman's life. Welcome everybody. The event is hosted nice cool? by Jane Caro. <laughs> I hope so. To this wonderful session, um, which is called Living... No, Hot Flush Living. In fact, I'm supposed to say, welcome to Hot Flush Living, which sounds a bit like I'm the devil standing at the gateway to hell. <laughs> um, I'd rather fancy myself as the devil, in fact, so if you'd like to think of me that way, I'm quite happy about it. Um, we will be talking, of course, about all things menopausal. And the person we're going to be, who's going to be talking to us, and then I'll be talking to, and then we'll all be talking to, is the fantastic Darcy Steinke, who um, has written this fabulous book, Flash Count Diary, a news story about the menopause. Uh, Darcy is a novelist. She's a non-fiction writer. She teaches at Columbia and Princeton. She lives in Brooklyn with her husband, who is in the audience, which, given how many times he's probably heard her speak about this book, is a tribute to their relationship. <laughs> um, she is now, of course, like me, on the upside of menopause. Uh, once you've been through it, for those of you who have, you will know that you go through the hot flush living and you come out on the sunny uplands of never having periods anymore. And I, for one, haven't been able to find anything negative about that. Um, so we'll be listening to Darcy in just a second. I'm about to introduce her, but first I'd like to also introduce and acknowledge Nat, who is one of our two Auslan interpreters for this session. Carolyn will be coming up and replacing her after 15 minutes because, you know, signing about menopause for 15 minutes is about as long as anyone can bear. Um, <laughs> And then Carolyn will take over and so on and so forth. But that's enough from me for the moment. Please, will you welcome Darcy Steinke to talk about her wonderful, wonderful book. Hello. I'm so thrilled to be here. Thank you so much, Jane. Uh, before I start, I just have to say that I have a little stutter. Um, you don't have to worry about me. I'm not going to have a, you know, like a stroke or anything like that. But um, somehow, if I, you know, if I tell you about it up front, I'll do it less. So I you know, need to let you know about that. So I'm going to give you a sense of my journey through menopause. So I had my first hot flash when I was about 52. I woke, you know, I woke, in, the middle of, I woke in the middle of the night just completely incandescent with heat. I felt this sort of spooky quiet around me. It was like flame, it was like my internal organs were on fire and they were you know, shooting heat like into my muscles and up into my skin. And the main thing I wanted to do was to run away, but like you can't really run away from your own body, you know? Um, 
And, you know, because I was a minister's daughter, my first thought actually was, finally God is trying to contact me, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But in the next few days, I continued to flash. So I realized I had entered my menopause. My menopause had begun. Um, And it was a physical thing, but I never really let go of that idea that, that what was happening to me you know, and to my body was also a spiritual thing and even a metaphysical thing. So that stayed with me. Um, so being a writer and a reader, I began to seek out books that might help me to understand, you know, what was happening to my body, like what was happening to me. And I was really surprised to find very few texts that helped me. Um, there were some medical books that explained menopause in ways um, that seemed like very misogynist to me. Um, you know, they would talk about symptoms you know, as if it was a, you know, like as if it was a disease, like not sort of a normal passage. Um, and they would like to, and they would describe these symptoms like senile ovaries. I mean, nobody wants to think, nobody wants to think of their ovaries as senile. I'm sorry. Oh, actually, and then the idea too of the, um, actually, this one really gets me. The, um, the, um, a- the um, atrophy. Atrophied vagina. I mean, there must be a nicer, a kinder way to say that, right? I mean, I just think, I just think it's just wrong, you know. <laughs> you know, and oh. <laughs> um, and then there were also some, you know, besides the medical books, there were some uh, celebrity, you know, sort of celebrity ho- you know, hormone memoirs like uh, Suzanne Somers' *The Sexy Years*. Um, in her book. Uh, Summer calls, uh, um, calls menopause a disease. She tells us that if we don't go on hormones, our partners are sure to leave us. Yeah, it's terrible. She gives like extremely spurious you know, medical advice. Uh, she tells us that, th- that there are three kinds of women, twiggy, athletic, and curvy. She goes on to say that the curvy type are short with D-cup breasts and weak muscles. <laughs> She tells us that this type has extremely high estrogen levels. The curvy type, she tells us, are happier, less complex, and they like to have a lot of sex. So, so you know, you know, I don't know. It's just not that helpful, you know? Like, I mean, I was really surprised that book even got published, you know? It's just kind of crazy to me. So these, these books really did nothing to support, to support or stabilize me. Um, instead, I felt completely alienated. You know, I was often up at the... I was often up in the night, you know, feeling, you know, feeling as if my body was sort of morphing in like an almost sci-fi way. I sort of felt like this new, like, androgynous creature was finally escaping out of my early feminine form. And it seemed very profound to me. Like, it didn't seem something to make fun of or to, or like, you know, disease-like. It seemed more like a passage of, of great meaning and great power, you know? So I continued to, to search uh, for ways t- to understand, like, what, uh, what, what was happening to me. I went to the Historical Medical Library in New York City, uh, where I read some, some, some early books about menopause. In one, uh, by Dr. Edward Tilt, um, uh, on this book was called The Change of Life and Health and Disease. It was, it was published in um, 1857. <laughs> he claimed that during menopause, women might become violent. <laughs> they may go on drinking binges. <laughs> they may steal. They may attempt suicide. They may squander money. They should not be given their own bank account. Um, they might become prostitutes. That was an interesting one. And they may, I think this is like quite a good one and possibly true. They may turn to their, 
they may turn to the same sex for love. Um, and they may collect first one and then dozens of cats. You know? <laughs> uh, and in the Q&A at the end of that book, um, this woman asked, like, you know, now that I'm not bleeding monthly, actually, will I bleed from anywhere else? And uh, the, doctor, the, the doctor says, yes, you may bleed from your mouth or your nose. I mean, it's just, you know. So, so as part of my search for understanding, I started to really think about the ways menop menopausal women are treated um, on TV and in the movies. And my first experience as a little girl was watching, um, was watching the TV show All in the Family. And I would watch like Edith Bunker uh, get red and frustrated and she would run into the kitchen like as the laugh track roared, you know. Yeah, she was having a hot flash, obviously. And I, I just realized that like in these forms, menopause is, you know, is, you know, is often like a comedic skit. It's kind of like a man falling on a banana, you know, like a man um, falling on a banana peel. Um, and there's also that 70s show where Red Foreman, uh, he looks up menopause and actually in the encyclopedia, and he's disgusted. He says, good God, I didn't think there'd be pictures, <laughs> you know? So the more I thought about the way we were portrayed menopausal women, I, I, was, I, would, I really started to get more and more angry, you know? I also like interviewed some doctors who treat menopausal women, one who felt that hormones you know, were really the best way to combat menopause. Uh, she told me something that really I thought was kind of like blood chilling. She told me, my patients don't want to enjoy sex. They just don't want it to hurt. <laughs> and that it was so sad. You know, it really doesn't, it doesn't take into to, you know, to account like what women really want, like what their desires really are, you know. So the lowest point, the darkest moment in my search for menopausal information um, occurred at a medical menopause conference in Amsterdam. There, I heard a male doctor in a panel describe the menopausal vagina. He just was going on and on about like dryness and tightness and lack of pliability. And as I, you know, as he talked, I realized that he was talking about the vagina basically as a penis holder, <laughs> you know? He wasn't really talking about the way the vagina felt to the woman who owned it, you know? And that really, that's, it kind of like frightened me and scared me, you know? Uh, that same doctor's cure was hormones um, to get your to, to get to get the vagina back in shape, uh, vaginal lasering, and for lack of desire, he suggested these pills that are supposed to, you know, you know, that are supposed to up female libido. Nobody talked about the women's feelings. It was all about making her compliant and available. You know, my feeling has always been um, that. If the sex that's offered to women is worth having, she will want to have it. <laughs> you know? I just think, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. I really believe that. <laughs> so, so these doctors wanted to shut down menopause. They wanted to move women backwards, actually back into her fertile years. Uh, the fertile years, of course, are considered like a healthy period. The menopausal one, you know, are considered diseased. Um, you know, and no one tries to shut down male puberty, menstruation, or childbirth. You know, only menopause is seen as something to eradicate. So as I started to realize that I was going to have to write the book, uh, like I was going to have to write the book about the female body, about menopause, um, that I really wanted to read, I started to reach out to, 
to women going through the change. And I interviewed about 100 women. And from these women, um, you know, they shared their stories with me. It was really a beautiful, it was really a very beautiful and healing experience. You know, it, it's what actually helped me move through my own menopause. So I learned how, you know, complete, completely arduous cycling was for many women. The bleeding, the pain, the hormonal, you know, the hormonal ups and downs. How grateful most women really were to be out from under that. I learned that um, each woman's menopause, you know, the transition is completely unique to her. There's no one way to go through menopause. I learned that uh, women's desires often realign. You know, some felt their desires expanded, like in part because they could no longer get pregnant. Um, others felt uh, less interested in the sexual script of their fertile years. You know, they now wanted like other positions and other activities. I spoke with women who told me the deep pleasure of their physical union with their long-term partners. Um, you know, some women told me uh, sex was no longer the basis of their marriage, and they were fine with that. You know, I also spoke to women who, um, who had embraced uh, celibacy, and this group was really enthusiastic. It was really, you know, it was really surprising to me. But um, they felt that their celibacy deepened their life, like it connected them to a group of friends in a way that, you know, they, they could love everyone because they didn't have to be, you know, just focused on one person. And that was really a beautiful idea, I felt. And, you know, you know, sort of surprising to me as well. Um, many women I spoke to felt a sort of danger, actually felt like a gender change, like at menopause. And I sort of felt this as well. I felt less, you know, traditionally female, like traditionally femme. I felt more androgynous. You know, I felt in my own, in my own hormonal uh, um, journey, I felt really inspired by men and women, uh, actually by trans men and women. I mean, that was really the thing that, I, like the first thing I latched onto was the trans memoirs. I really identified with um, like how they described their hormonal transitions. Um, they were scared and they were discombobulated, but they were also excited by this transformation. Like they did not fight the change to their bodies, but they embraced it. Uh, actually, one book I particularly liked uh, by the trans man and poet uh, Max Wolf of Valario, he spoke about a fog lifting you know, during his transition. He wrote, I'm not... I'm not depressed. There is a freedom, a bright clarity. And I really, I really identified with that. I really feel the same way. Um, so reading about the trans experience really helped me to recontextualize like, what was happening to my own body. But I still wanted like, a model of menopause itself that was not one of disease, but of hope. And strangely, I finally found this in Killer Whales. I discovered by reading, by reading like an article in the New York Times that killer whales, as well as a few other kinds of whales, are the only creatures besides women to go through menopause. And then they uh, live to have a long post-reproductive life. Uh, by doing more, more research, I found out that by studying killer whales, particularly the southern resident whales who live in the Salish Sea, off the coast of Washington State. By studying them, scientists were coming closer to why menopause has been selected in the Darwinian sense. I mean, when, I mean, when we talk about Darwinian fitness, which means all, you know, having as many children as you can before you die, a menopause in a way doesn't make much sense we, you know, because we stop at midlife. Um, and there was, uh, wait, sorry, my things are like out of order. Ah, I'm just gonna go with it. All right, so um, the matriarchs like knew where food was in uh, you know, time, of, 
time of scarcity. Uh, they helped younger members of their pods. Uh, they were often seen uh, swimming next to members of their pods as if giving advice. And so this, the scientists who study these um, whales, you know, kind of figured that their model, I mean, they live in a matriarchy, but they kind of figured that their model for menopause is probably the same as, as um, like as, you know, why ours was also selected when we were hunters and gatherers, is that like around 50, you know, women got so smart. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's the truth, you know. You also have to remember that before technology, you know, when you wanted to know, like, is that plant poison, you went to the old, you know, the oldest lady in the tribe, and she told you, you know. So, you know, so they became so smart and so, you know, so important to their families and their communities that menopause was selected so they could be, um, you know, so there could be two groups of women. Uh, those to do the important, the very important work of giving birth, you know, raising children, and then those over 50 to lead, you know. So finally, you know, so finally here was a model for menopause that was uh, both inspiring and very hopeful to me. So what happened was is I got completely obsessed with the southern resident killer whales. I watched them on YouTube. I read whale blogs, like, about them. I can remember during this time, I, I, I just got so inspired by them. I can remember, actually one time during this time, as I was having you know, a bad night, you know, and sort of a, I hadn't been able to sleep, I was very frustrated. I can remember my husband coming over to the bed in the morning and he said to me, when you stay with the whales, you do really good. But when you go away from the whales, you don't do so good. <laughs> <laughs> so I really realized that even he was noticing this incredible, you know. Um, and then, you know, I even hooked my computer up to the underwater hydrophone, you know, in San Juan Island, so I could hear the whales. Uh, you know, I could hear those, I, I could hear them speaking to one another. I could hear their clicks and their buzzes and those, you know, beautiful haunting bell tones that they make. And one whale in particular, J2, a 105-year-old matriarch, um, compelled me the most. And she's the leader of J, L, and K pod. And some of the whale scientists told me that when she was you know, swimming around the island on Harrow Strait, she would fl you know, flap her back tail and all the whales would line up you know, behind her. She was very powerful. Um, so, so I glued her photo into notebooks. And at night, like when I was up and I was wide awake, I would think about her moving around in the dark, you know, Salish Sea. Um, it, was, it was very powerful to get so obsessed with the creature. In some ways, I felt like what was happening to me was like what happens to to people in folk tales, you know? I was like a girl who, who befriends a creature, like a bear or a lion, you know? And then, and that creature helps them to the next stage of life. I felt like that, I, I, you know, I felt like J2 Granny was really helping me with that. So finally, my obsession, you know, caused me to get on an airplane, fly to Seattle, take a van up the coast, uh, get on a ferry um, to San Juan Island, get in a sea kayak and paddle out uh, to, to try to see the whales. Um, and, you know, the sea kayak is, you know, I'm sure maybe, actually some of you have been on them, they're these long things, and I think we paddled like 10 miles out. It was just so exhausting. Um, and while I don't have time here to tell you the whole story, I did get to see J2, the 105-year-old on whale who's nicknamed Granny. I saw her leading her pod. She swam just a few yards from my kayak. Um, 
And my, my encounter with her was much different than I anticipated. There was no like soft focus, like sentimental connection. <laughs> like it wasn't like a born free situation, you know? <laughs> Yeah, you know, there was no like, you know, perfect like interspecies like understanding like a rich lady and her elephant or something, you know, like, <laughs> like instead, you know, instead her large brown eye, like in her massive, you know, massive shining body, she looked at me sitting in my kayak with a sort of sad derision, you know, her look was, was censorious, like actually, um, it, you know, it seemed to say like, what are you doing? I mean, that was kind of the message. Like it was a wary look, like of wisdom and disapproval. It seemed to say, get your shit together, you know, <laughs> and get out there and lead. So thank you very much. That was lovely. Um, Thank you. I, I must say, when I read the book, I was particularly captivated <clears throat> by all the stuff about whales and granny and all of that. I have also read um, some research, I don't know how credible it is, that they now believe the reason that human females um, live for often three decades mm -hmm. beyond their reproductive life is because of the grandmother effect, that mm. basically because human children are so uh, labour-intensive, right. that if um, a grandmother, for example, was having children alongside her daughter who's having children, all those children have less a chance of actually mm. making it to adulthood. Right. But when the grandmother stops having children so that she can support her daughter right, in child-rearing... Yeah. And the, apparently they said when the... And it, grandmothers on both sides have an effect, but the maternal grandmother in particular, the children of living maternal grandmothers um, are taller, stronger mm, right. and healthier. Yeah, they get more food, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah right. I yeah, mean, yeah. did you come across research like that as well? Yeah, yeah. No, I think, the, I mean, the, like of all the, um, the, you know, the theories of menopause, you know, the grandmother effect is the best one. I mean, there's some really, like, other terrible ones. Like, there's one which I can't remember the name of it, but I call it the Hugh Hefner effect, where, like, we stop, we stop, like, like we stop cycling because men prefer younger, like, women. Oh, so we're, and we're just sort of beck and you know, call. Because, you know, we're just, like, dragged along because they live longer. Oh. Yeah. It's terrible. Yeah. yeah. And, it, you know, of course, you know, guess who discovered that one? A oh, man. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, where the grandmother effect is, actually was discovered by a woman, yeah. And, but it just struck me that the whale, the nickname of the whale that is 100, well, the whale, as you reveal in your book, right. has since died. I but, know. I mean, yeah, 105. Yeah, she's she good in it. She worked hard, yeah. yeah. Too, there's a beautiful picture, actually, the very last picture of her is from a drone photo, actually from, uh, like, a fishery, and it, it shows her corralling a salmon for a younger member of her, actually, of her family. It's a very beautiful picture. And she looks very thin, too, in it. <laughs> you know? I mean, you know, you know, she probably passed with, she probably, you know, died within two months or something, but it's just very beautiful that till the end she was in there helping. Yeah. yeah. Still yeah. nurturing the younger right. um, generation. And I was also fascinated reading your book, and you mentioned it um, up there as well, how the experience of trans men and women mm. really helped you to kind of 
understand the whole idea of a transition period, of a right. liminal period exactly. in your life. Yeah. Talk a bit about that. I mean, I just find, I just, I feel so grateful to the trans community. I feel like they're such, they're so brave and they're such models of, of self-fulfillment and, you know, I, and, and I don't know, I just, uh, you know, when I got on their memoirs, it was the first time that I felt that like a hormonal change could actually be like positive and powerful, you know, and that the thing I was changing into was going to be new and different, but, it, but there would be joy there. Like it wasn't like I was going to a place of just, you know, horror and crone, you know, like terrible cronehood, you know, like all bit of dried up. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So that really helped me. I mean, they really helped me to show that, like, you know, the hormonal transition is something to be, it's, there's a lot of struggle and it's tough, but there's some, like, solid gains, you know? And so I, I yeah, that really inspired me. They really inspired me a lot. I read a bunch of their books. I met with some of them and just so inspiring, I mean. But also I think what's interesting about, because I'd not thought about the parallel till I read, read it in your book, mm -hmm. is that it, it, it also makes it really clear that, you are transitioning from being one version of you mm -hmm. to another version of you. Right, that exactly. the person who comes out the other end is not the same. I feel that way, yeah. 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 I mean, I felt really like, I mean, I'd heard, I, like I said, I you know, had heard about it, like I'd heard people make fun of hot flashes. I'd heard about it as sort of a terrible transition. But I really felt like, uh, like the hot flashes were helpful in that, like it was like a graduate school for growth. You know what I mean? Like, like it, it was like my old self actually needed the hot flashes, like to burn off, like who I'd been. You know. So like a snake shedding its skin. Yeah. In a or way. It, it felt like a very like sci-fi morphing, like the change. You know what I mean? Like it just seemed like it seemed really kind of amazing to me. Like I mean, while it was so uncomfortable, it was also like so embodied. You know, I mean, most of the things we know about the world come from being, you know, living in a body, you know? And so it really, I find it so sad that this idea of menopause, which is so powerful, is, you know, they try to eradicate it because it's such a powerful transition. I mean, like, living through it is what, you know, it's part of how you do change. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, so. Well, my observation, too, is that, in fact, once, I mean, menopause is as you said, unique to every individual woman. So mm. there's no, this is what it'll be like. It'll be different for everyone. But once you threw it and out the other side, my experience was a sense of freedom and liberation. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, that's a very wide open feeling. I think it's, you know, the cycle, you know yourself through cycling. You know, you know this week you feel like this, you know, the hormone cycle, and then, you know, you you feel a certain way before your period. And once that's cleared away, I just feel like it's, it's like running into a, like a meadow filled with wildflowers. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just like, it's just so great. Which you can you know, pick like... and keep for yourself. <laughs> yeah. It's just so wide open. You know what I mean? I, I really find that to be, I find that to be just amazing, you know? Well, I mean, on a purely practical level, if you think about how your body... I mean, my feeling about my body now is that it is like it was when I was nine years old. Mm, yeah. So it is really functional. I don't have to worry about it. Yeah. I'm wearing white pants, you'll notice. Yeah. In honor <laughs> of. Yeah. There's no greater liberation than being able to wear white pants anytime you want. It's true. Um, <laughs> and not because of the efficacy of your fucking tampon. Yeah. Um, and... The headspace that is liberated from no longer having to worry about yeah. your reproductive cycle, yeah. not just cycling, but yeah. are you pregnant when you don't oh, want to yeah. be pregnant? Oh, to worry are about you being pregnant. not pregnant oh when you do yeah. want to be pregnant? Yeah, I know, I know, I know. 
it's just, it's wonderful. I mean, it's a wonderful thing to be free of that, you know. I mean, I'm not saying there isn't value in, you know, there's something beautiful about cycling and, you know, childbirth and raising children and, and birth, but there's also something beautiful about this phase too, you yes. know what I mean? And, and that's what I want. Like, I want it to be both normalized and recognized. And do you think too, it struck me reading your book that women's bodies are not under our control in the same way as men's bodies mm, yeah. are under their control. Mm -hmm. In that we can't, the periods happen whether we want them to right, or not. Right. Uh, we can't control how heavy or, we can with medications, but not through our willpower. Um, and that pregnancy can happen when we want it to, when we don't want it to, mm. won't happen when we do want it to. You know, there's all this stuff that we have very little control over. But the, the brilliant side of that is we learn that control's not the point. Yeah, flexibility, I think that's right, yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, I'm not saying this is true, like, of all men, but there's a sense of stasis sometimes where we're just, like, cycling and, you know what I mean? Like, there, there's so much going on, yeah. So I do think that's true, that, that, that the idea of just the vulnerability and the brokenness of the body can be worked into the whole story. You know, rather than like, I'm, I'm great, I'm perfect, I'm going forward, you know. But it, I mean, like I always think the best people are like, they're kind of dinged up a little bit, you know what I mean? <laughs> I really feel like that makes for a really good person. And it's, it's important not to sort of like throw that off. I think, you know, the dinged upness is the real beauty of life, the value of life, you know. The patina. Yeah, exactly, mm. exactly. And, and I think this thing about... Und Women have to face the reality of being a human being all the way th from a, quite an early age mm -hmm. and our bodies being animalistic. Right, being, yeah. um, you know, we're sort of, I think, aware more of our lack of divinity. Mm, you're right, yeah, that's interesting. And that that in itself is a yeah. huge gift. Yeah. We're less, um, dare I use the word, pretentious? Yeah. I mean, I would say, I think part of like menopause for me was definitely feeling more like an animal. Like I sort of felt like I had a timestamp, you know? And like, like this is real, like you're, you know, you may live 30 more years. But I think that's sort of positive too. Like, you know, it's a, you know, it's a reckoning. I mean, I mean, even in some ways the insomnia, I was sort of up at night thinking about my life different aspects of my life. Sometimes I would think about the things I had done wrong, but I was more thinking about the, you know, the whole expanse of it. And my feeling was, like, whether it was good or bad, like, it was my life. And that's what made it valuable, like, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I feel like, in some ways, without that insomnia, without that thinking about things at night, I'm not sure, you know, without menopause, I'm not sure if I would have, you know, had these moments of reckoning that actually can make for a lot of joy. Yeah. You know, once you've actually faced them, you know? And when you are reproductive, like mm. you're, you're fertile, I suppose, um, or even if you're not, but you're cycling and whatever, um, you are still, in a way, your body is about others. Mm. And I liked, I loved it when you said that the the guy described the the, the medico described us as if we were really a, a vagina was a penis holder. Yeah. Um, and I think the word even means, doesn't it, sheath? Yeah. It's, sheath for a sword. Yeah. Oh, sheath so for terrible. a sword. Doesn't that just turn you on? I'm so sad when on? I found that out. I think we should rename it. Let's, like, yeah. let's rename it. Yeah, let's Ugh. call it something else. But it's funny because I was actually, like I was reading like somewhere in the States and one of the questions, like the woman came up to the mic and she goes, my penis holder is angry. <laughs> 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 I just 
thought that was so good. I'm like, my penis holder's angry too. You know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's right. My penis holder is often closed. Um, <laughs> sorry, gone fishing. Uh, <laughs> but it's, it's um, I also like how we're, when menopause happens, we, in a way, refocus on our body as belonging to us. Yeah, I think that's right, yeah, yeah. It comes back to us in a way, yeah. It comes back to us. I think us. that's right. And to me, that's been very meaningful and beautiful, you know. I mean, it's beautiful to give your body to, you know, to others, like, if you want to freely, whether it's in sex or, you know, care, like maternal care. Um, but it's also beautiful to have your body back, mm. I think, yeah. Yeah. And why then? I mean, why have we spent really such a long part of human history trashing yeah. um, this experience. Yeah. Well, in fact, what we've done until relatively recently mm. is been utterly silent about yeah, I this think so. experience. Shame. Shame. And it's been anyway. a shameful. Yeah. Uh, and to be called... I mean, I, I do love Judy Dench, but she did describe herself as a postmenopausal dwarf at one point. Mm. I, I can identify. But um, <laughs> nevertheless, there is that sense in which... That is not paying yourself a compliment. It's yeah, not a boast. Yeah. Well, there's. I feel like there's so much um, internalized misogyny that we've like sort of picked up. And I mean, yeah. I think that's. I think that's a problem. Mm. I mean, I, I'm not against making jokes. I think jokes are amazing. You know. Mm. I think it's like wonderful to laugh. But I don't really think menopause is something to laugh at. I mean, we don't. I mean, like the, the, you know, like you know, a lot of women came to me and told me about how they were made fun of at work. You know, when they would have hot flashes. And my feeling is, like, nobody makes fun of someone having a seizure. You know what I mean? It's just, it's just boilerplate misogyny, mm. you know? And I, I'm sort of against that, you know? I think you can laugh with menopause. So yeah. a bunch of menopausal women in a room together is hilarious. That's true. That's true, yeah. Yeah, that's true. But it, it's a bit like, you know, never punch down. Yeah. And so if you tell jokes about someone else's suffering... Yeah. There's something fundamentally tasteless about yeah, that, that's I've true. always thought. That's true, I think, yeah. Yeah. It's true. And so we have the thing where men menopause is seen, you called it a disease. People mm -hmm. regard it as a disease. Yeah. And so we have an industry which yeah. is involved in curing menopause. Right. Yeah, it's true. And, of course, curing ageing. Women aren't supposed to get older. We're meant right. to stay forever dewy. Yeah. Available in 18. Yeah, right. Our penis right. holders are ought penis to be, holders. you know, elastic. And yeah, well, right. Wet. Yeah. Gasping. Yeah, yeah. For the yeah. thing that it's missing. Yeah, yeah. No, it's true. Yeah. Men aren't vain at all, are they? <laughs> so what about HRT? What, you, what are your feelings yeah. about that? Mm -hmm. Well, I think, I, I think women have been judged enough. I mean any choice, that the, I mean, there's no wrong way to go through menopause, you know. My problems with hormones are more the, like the big pharma companies that really, like a lot of them push them on women. You know, I think hormones are pushed on women, you know, who are feeling kind of vulnerable, like who may not need them, you know. Mm. I think they do help some people. I don't think they're, you know, they're needed for everybody, actually. Um, it's more the ideas around them that it has to do with moving back to your fertile self. And also, you know, there is some, they, it's very, you know, very downplayed now, but there is some danger around them, too. I mean, they always say you can take them if you, there's no one in your family that has had heart disease, blood clotting, or breast cancer, but who, who is that? Mm. I mean, doesn't everyone mm. have that? Yeah, you know? yeah. So that worries me, too. Um, and just the idea of, of like, 
you know, you're staying younger by taking them. That's the thing that I'm not that interested in. Uh, but having said that, you know, I do have friends actually that um, that have gone on them and they've helped them so much. I think, you know, when you have a hysterectomy, it's important to be on them for a while. You know, so I think I'm not really against them at, no. at all. You know, I just think that it's it's the way it's the idea that like when they're used like for stasis. That, that sort of bothers To hold me. back time. Yeah, exactly. That, I think that is not really... I mean, when we pretend that we're younger than we are, it's almost like, you know, pretending not to be gay or something. You know what I mean? It's like, it's just kind of crazy. Like, you know, it, it just it's, doesn't make any sense to me, you know, so... Yeah, why aren't we... Like, we need to take pride in um, growing older. Well, yeah, I've been happy to see in the States, you know, I live in Brooklyn, that a lot of the young women are dyeing their hair gray. And it looks great on them. Mm. And they'll, you know, they'll even do like the kind of like very older lady blue gray. But it looks amazing. I feel such, I feel real solidarity with that mm. too. I don't know. I really, I think that's a good sign. I don't know. I agree yeah. with you. Though yeah. I am really interested now that I've reached 62, mm -hmm. how often people who I think would consider themselves quite progressive, left wing, mm -hmm. even dare I say woke, uh -huh. uh, will use the word old mm. as an insult. Yeah. And I have to go back, I make a, a, an absolute thing to go back and say, look, it's fine if you don't like me, you don't agree with me, you know, that's, that's your right, of course. Mm -hmm. But just a heads up, old is not an insult. Yeah. It's a fact. Yeah. And I am here to let you in on a horrible secret. You will be old so yourself so fast, it'll make your head spin. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. The young, I can remember being a young woman, and I knew intellectually that this was nonsense, mm -hmm. but I used to look at older women around me, and I assumed in a way they'd always been old. They were mm. born that way. Yeah. You know, that was just old, mm. and that was their place. Mm. It was when I oddly turned 26 that I suddenly mm. thought, oh shit, this doesn't stop. Yeah. You keep, oh, yeah. oh. No, you, you, I think you have a strange like idea of aging when you're young. You know, I know I teach, um, I teach students writing and I had a student recently who wrote this story and you know, this, you know, this woman gets out of bed and she looks in the mirror and her face is wrinkled <gasps> and she, her hair is dull and it's the day of her 26th birthday. <laughs> You know, and I was like, come on, you know what I mean? <laughs> Give us a break, wow. She, I'm always you know, like, saying to people, people say, oh my God, yeah. I just turned 40. I go, oh, it gets so much worse. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just wait. Oh. Um, I think it's now's a good time to throw it open to questions from the floor. We have two microphones on either side. Um, if you want to ask a question, please head to those microphones. Um, don't hang back, because it'll get so that there's a whole heap of people and you've got a question you're burning to ask, and then the time will run out and you'll be really shitty with me because you didn't get to ask your question. And you're being told right here and now, because I'm an old lady and I don't put up with that shit anymore, that's your own fault. Go stand at the microphone now. <laughs> Before we go to this first question right. over here, that's it. Just struck me. Do you find too that post menopause, I found a kind of um, couldn't give a shitness yeah. that I never had before. I think yeah, yeah. Some women describe it as like not giving any fucks. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely think that that's yeah, yeah. and that could be physical or metaphorical. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. 
please ask your question. Hi, um, I'm going to take a liberty because I need to tell this tiny little story. I do. In Sydney on Friday morning, it was 90% humidity, <laughs> and I got into work and I put my little desk fan on and I was complaining about how hot it was and my 28-year-old male colleague said, maybe it's not hot, Maria, maybe it's the big M. Oh, God. And I said to him, if it was the big M, you have a death wish. <laughs> anyway, I wanted to ask if uh, in your research you discovered anything about perimenopause. Yeah. Because Good I'm... 45 and a half, mm -hmm. and as early as five years ago, I'm pretty sure I was going through very severe mood swings right. that went from apathy to I will kill someone right now. Right. And I cannot find anything about perimenopause yeah. at all. Um, actually, my book is mostly about menopause, not about perimenopause, but there's a new book that came out from my friend Ada Calhoun. It's called Why We Can't Sleep. It's been a bestseller in the States, and that book is about perimenopause. Um, and I, I think they're, I think perimenopause, like at least in the States, people are talking about it a, like a lot more now. They're talking about some of the things that you know, go along with it, and there's more focus and understanding about it. I think women are very interested in it too, actually. So did I- you, Did you go through any symptoms before? Um, I do sort of, I mean, that was a long time ago now, but like, so it was like 10 years ago. So I sort of remember, I do remember, you know, crazy, you know, gigantic periods. So I can remember that. <laughs> Me you know? too. Yeah. <laughs> That's hard. And, and three uh, layers, two pads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, exactly. and erratic. They'd come, yeah. you know, they'd be like two months, and you'd just start to get yeah. hopeful. And then, ah, oh, it'd yeah. be like two weeks between. Exactly. But my GP can't say any, tell me anything about them. My gynecologist no. can't tell me anything about yeah. them. My psychotherapist didn't even hint at. Uh, yeah, so but this is so common. I mean, I too was left. I mean, you know, I went to my doctor, who's actually she's a French woman. You would feel like she would know something, but she, you know, what I mean, come on, you know, about champagne. Certainly. Yeah, but she, she even said to me, you know, she just was sort of like, oh, I don't think that's menopause. I don't really know what it is. And, I, and so I was, I was left like most women are, just googling a lot. <laughs> You know, just a lot of Googling. You know? The thing about menopause is the whole thing is that it's kind of weird because my experience was it was perimenopause that was the symptomatic part of it. Menopause itself is actually defined as when you haven't had a period for 12 months. So it's actually the absence right. yeah, exactly. of something mm -hmm. rather than the presence of something. Mm. And that's what makes it so mm. kind of amorphous and hard mm. to right, yeah. pin down. Yeah. But I, you, you have my sympathy with perimenopause. I can't tell you how good it is to be 62. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's really, really great. Yes. Yeah. Next Hi. question. Um, it's about brain function. Mm. Do you think, as we have baby brains, mm -hmm. we get menopausal brains? Or I, I believe I'm perimenopausal as well. Uh -huh. Five. The changes are undeniable. Um, so I'm looking into what's going to right. be affected in terms of yeah. No, I did. I did. I did do some research on because I have to say the only symptom that I'm actually worried about, like really, is my brain. You know, I really want my brain to be sharp. And so I talked to a lot of scientists, and it was sort of amazing because most of them. I remember there was this woman. I won't be able to remember her name. I think she was from the University of Maine, though, and she did a study that had to do with um, you know actually women who complained of fuzzy thinking. And then women who didn't, actually both menopausal, and she found out on tests that, the, that actually the fuzzy thinkers did better on the tests. 
And there's lots of stuff like that, actually. When you actually do the research, there was very little that I could find that actually linked um, not as good brain function or not as sharp brain function to menopause. I mean, so I'm not sure. I mean, I, I, I myself know that maybe sometimes I'm, I have to reach, I have to think a little bit more. I, I mean, maybe like a word doesn't come to me actually maybe quite as quickly. I'm not sure about that because that's always been how I am. But um, I think it might be aging in general too. I don't know if we need to blame. I think like a lot of things are blamed on menopause as well that are just kind of generally aging things. Like, you know what I mean? So I don't know, I'm, I'm not convinced that, I'm really, I mean, I know it's a part of what people think of as menopause, which, you know, I mean, there's some people, I'm not saying I would exactly go there, but, but, but there are some people that think of menopause as, you know, as a syndrome, um, like hysteria was a syndrome in the Victorian period, a bunch of symptoms that are sort of like gathered around a condition, you know, that's very negative, very female, sort of a way to debase us in a way. So I worry about that as well. I worry about this idea of brain function is like, we, we're told that we are less sharp, so I wonder if then we, we sort of feel less sharp or we're more conscious when we are less sharp, maybe. Mm. So I'm not really convinced of that, so okay. I don't know. Yeah, sure. I always thought with baby brain when I had my children that it wasn't that my brain was fuzzy, it was that I had to remember 365 things every time I left the house. You had more, and it wasn't yeah. exactly surprising when I forgot the 356. Yeah. And yet we blame ourselves and say it's it's us. Yeah, we no, blame ourselves. It's your a husband, lot. not fucking doing yeah. half the work. Yeah, we blame stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's true. Um, we'll go over here and then we'll go back over here. Okay. Hi. Oh, hi. Um, I wrote my honours thesis last year on period pain, period oh, pain management. Right. I'm using technology like smartphone technology, so mm. looking at a lot of fertility tracking apps and um, things like that. And I found a kind of like maybe a positive future in some way, very much built by um, kind of female identifying um, tech entrepreneurs who mm. are making their own apps and things um, that could help you identify things like endometriosis um, mm. before the suspected time of um, usually takes up to eight to ten years for mm. doctors to recognise it in you. But this is, the, what I was looking at was maybe more self-determined way of diagnosing yourself with something that reproductive... Um, pain and um, not just physical but also emotional and mental so like PMS and PMDD and things like that mm -hmm. um, so your book's very interesting to me in mm -hmm. terms of menopause because I think that that's very much left out of the reproductive pain kind of it is. spectrum it's, and yeah. it's very painful my mum had to have um, HRT um, mm -hmm. uh, with her uh, menopause because it was just it was like death, a small death. Mm -hmm. um, so I was wondering, in my research, obviously it's all very emotional and um, uh, for you to read it and to go through it, mm -hmm. but as a researcher there are some positives in thinking, kind of connecting with inspiring new research or mm. kind of having um, a researcher or a point of reference. I have a few academics who are doing really great things. Mm. Did you find in your research um, maybe one or two names who you kind of really... Um, held on to and really liked their work and what mm. their vision is for the future of that? I mean, I, I did, a, I talked to a lot of scientists and I did a lot of, I mean, I like the studies the best that don't, like, demonize menopause, right? I mean, that, but I can't, I, I really can't exactly mention people that I think, I mean, the people that I like the most are the ones that are, like, are seeing it as a natural passage mm. and, not, and not trying to medicate it, actually. I mean, that's the thing that I like the best. Is know? there anything with, um, 
so it may be an app or like any kind of yeah. ways of managing menopause that aren't necessarily a not, medical procedure? I mean, not that I could find. I mean, there was one woman, and um, I did talk to her. She was a, like a tech person and also a scientist. And I write about this in my book. But she, she's trying to, I think she is trying to do, I'm not sure if it's a menstruation app, or I'm not really sure. Like, she has lots of ideas. Um, but she did this cool thing where she, she found this, uh, you know, she's in San Francisco, this group of uh, menopausal nuns. And she wanted to figure out, because there's very little known about hot flashes. Like, some women can have less, actually less hormones, and they f will flash more than someone that has a lot of hormones. So there's really no, you know, they act like it's directly like, related to hormones, but that's not really true. So she's trying to figure out more like why, you know, why they actually happen, why, you know, what triggers them. So she got these nuns, and she got these, like, um, these um, infrared cameras, and she put them like, on the nuns when they were in the chapel. And she found that, that um, when one nun flashed, the nuns, actually down the row would flash in sequences. <laughs> so they were like catching the flash from each other. And she also talked about how like beautiful it looked, like there was like the stained glass and the saints. And then there's the nuns with these red, you know, red, incredible red things. So I like, of course I love that, you know, like I thought that was great. Okay, cool. um, yeah, because I think it's just really interesting with apps like um, Clue or Flow. They're, um, they're, they're supposed to be reproductive cycle apps. Mm, and yeah. People don't necessarily understand that reproductive cycle isn't just about being fertile. It's also about exactly. um, your reproductive um, the, the cycle, and that should include the, the transition of it or mm, the Totally. Of it. No, I, I consider myself fertile just in a completely different way. Yeah. You know? really yeah. yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. yeah. Over here. Yes, look, I was, I'm really interested in what you say. I think it's great. And what it is is about changing the narrative, isn't it? Mm. Taking it away from this biomedical model that has, that's imposed across all women's lives. Mm. I mean, I too am a researcher. Mm. And, you know, we're looking at the idea of, you know, why postnatal anxiety is becoming more and more prevalent in society. And mm. we look at it because, you know, women are just getting so much advice from everywhere. Like, they're looking at apps, they're, sorry to the person down there. <laughs> and they're reading all these kinds of books and they're trying to be perfect in everything. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, perhaps talking about menopause, it becomes this deficit-based model mm -hmm. where women go through menopause and somehow they're meant to feel all these things. I had a very easy menopause. I had my last period in New York City. Great. Just to let you know. We welcome you. We welcome <laughs> anybody that wants to come and have their last period in New York City. <laughs> come on over. Yeah. I did. We're there for you. Like, I we're went there to for New you. York and I bled. We're totally there for you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But, I mean, how do we turn this around and change this narrative so that women aren't coming up to menopause and saying, oh, I've got baby brain, you know, it's worse now. Yeah. You know, my... I mean, and how to, you know, yeah. and it's always looking at themselves from such a negative point of view. I know. Yeah, they blame themselves so much, women do, I know. I mean, it's just, to me, it's so hard. Well, when it's, you're a, you know, your intimate part is called a penis holder, it's not entirely surprising <laughs> that we're a bit down on ourselves, is yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, my hope would be that I know, like, I know the UK is doing, you know, quite well on menopause at the moment. I have heard that the Minister of Education just said that it's going to be taught, like, along, like, in health education, there's going to be puberty, birth, menopause, you know. But it's been left out of 
those, you know, those educations about what like happens to a female body, you know, which is just crazy to me. So, I mean, my hope is to really normalize it. Yeah. You know, so it's not this big, like, black hole, you know. And, and I just think, I'll just finish on this, it's important to remember that in a lot of traditional societies, you know, grandmothers raise children mm. because mothers have to go back to work. Mm. And that is the purpose of what a grandmother does. Mm. And I spent Friday talking with Indigenous women and they talked about birthing trees and the effect of grandmothers bringing up children. And, and I think that that's a very important role that people have in a traditional society that we perhaps lost in our own... Well, we're getting it back now. Mm. Grandmothers are bringing up children, aren't they? Mm. And I think we need to remember that perhaps that's what happened anyway. I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Gentleman here. Hi, thanks for the discussion. It's kind of building on the question before. Um, I'm just really interested in when you talk about the misunderstanding of menopause from men, and if you look around the room, there's not that many men in mm. today in the talk. Um, and if you, like, my view is, even if you go before menopause, I think there's a general lack of, lack of understanding about mm. female hormones in, you know, when you're, you leave school and you've got your first girlfriend, you don't mm -hmm. really understand. There's no discourse around what is a period. Right. It's kind of her thing. Right. Which is a bad thing, right? Because mm -hmm. then you get to the point where, you know, you're going through menopause and men in society don't even, have never engaged in that discussion. Right, right. So what is, what do you think the role is of, I mean, you kind of touched upon it, but yeah. from an education perspective, are we, what's the role of teaching young boys yeah. about female hormones more generally, not just about men? Yeah, well, I would like, I mean, it'd be great if mothers could talk to sons, you know, very directly about it. I mean, without shame and without making fun of themselves, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that would be a great thing. I mean, you know, I did a lot of radio when the book came out, and, you know, there'd always be, like, in the call-in shows, there'd be one man that would call in on, you know, and I would always worry. I would think, oh, they're going to make fun of it or something. But they completely, uh, universally, they were so nice. They were always saying, like, it was like Juan from Miami was saying, like, you know, my wife's about to go through menopause. I don't know anything about it. How can I help her? And it really showed me how little, how lost they are as well in a lot of ways, right? Like, we're lost ourselves. And in some ways, you know, people who partner women are also lost in a lot of ways too, you know? Um, I mean, I guess my biggest thing would be communication. And also, uh, it's very important communication. I mean, you know, sexuality may change, so you, you, you better be talking about that, like what like actually feels good now. Um, and then also, don't, no making fun, like don't make fun of hot flashes, you know, don't make fun of, I mean, you know, she's really struggling, you know, and so you wanna support her through this thing. I mean, that's a big thing, I think. Um, I don't think teasing really works that well, you know. But they can tease you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> In your research, have you found any societies out there that do this well? I mean, you mentioned the UK from an education perspective. Right. But are there communities that you think are, you know, from an early age, men are understanding more about female hormones, for example? Um, not really. I did find some, there are some communities where, where menopause, like, isn't demonized, where it's actually, like, a part of life that, you know, is looked forward to. Like, you know, it's a time when, like, like your daughter has to take over cooking you can now rest. I know there are some societies that are very tight. It's when you can go down after dinner and smoke and talk to the men finally, you know? I mean, there's some like, men, Gosh, I mean, there's some freedom. Upside. Yeah, I know. Like, it's weird that that's a plus, right? But, um, but uh, so there are some studies that it's, you know, considered, you know, like a more, you know, there's more freedom for the women, you know, if it's been too tight. But, um, but really, no, there's not, not a lot of like, um, not a lot of whole societies where men are super supportive of menopause. No, sorry, yeah. 
Yeah. But that can change. Yeah. I, I'd suggest read Darcy's book. Ooh. There you go. Yeah. There's a beginning. Um, we are almost out of time, so I just want to ask you one final question. Okay. Okay, so we've already established that, like me, you're past your use by date, and, you know, as far as the Hugh Hefner theory of the menopause, exactly, right. Right. Um, it's all over Red Rover. So what next? Well, I'm, you know, I'm, I keep writing, you know, I'm trying to decide what to do next. Um, I don't know, I, 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 will, I like to keep writing about the body, like I've always written about the body. And, f and for a long time it was hard for me to figure out how to write about the aging female body because, you know, like the world seems really interested when you're 20 and 30 writing about the body, but less interested when you're in your 50s and 60s about writing about the body. So. Um, I hope to you know keep doing that like in a way. Uh, I mean, the aging body to me, I, I think may be my my big subject. It's mm. interesting. I did, I would never have thought that if you had you know, had asked me that ten years ago. So, but I really think the idea of both the pain and the struggle, but also you know the the beauty and the meaning in that you know the brokenness. You know, um, so I'm hoping to somehow go in that direction. Oh, I cannot wait to read the next book about the ageing body. Well, thank you. As I'm living it. Uh, <laughs> can we please thank, thank Darcy? Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Really, thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks. Thanks for listening. And please rate and review Ideas at the House in your favourite podcast app. You can also listen to more Sydney Opera House podcasts at sydneyoperahouse.com slash podcasts.